Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to invite you to explore custom content solutions from skilled nursing news. In these uncertain times, it's never been more important to provide accurate and timely information to leaders in the post-acute and long-term care industry. At Skilled Nursing News, we can deliver your message directly to the decision makers, from sponsored webinars to white papers to custom Q&A features. Visit skillednursingnews.com slash advertising to learn more. COVID-19 made a permanent and devastating impact on nursing homes nationwide, but the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area felt the pain even more acutely than other regions, and generally earlier than the rest of the country. Dr. Paula Lester, a geriatrician at NYU Winthrop Hospital on Long Island, spoke with nursing home clinicians around the Empire State to determine the most important lessons learned during the peak of the COVID-19 crisis. Lester, along with several other colleagues, compiled those lessons in a paper recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association. I wanted Dr. Lester to share the best practices and biggest mistakes that operators made during those confusing early days in February and March, particularly now as states around the country reopen their economies and ease the strictest social distancing measures. The coronavirus crisis will remain in nursing homes long after the rest of us get back to some sense of normalcy. And I want to make sure that operators across the country have the chance to learn from the providers who endured the first wave before it could come crashing down on them, too. Here's our conversation. Dr. Lester, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for calling me. I'm happy to be able to speak with you. Sure. So before we get into some of these findings, just want to make sure our listeners have an understanding of what kind of work went into this. You know, how did you compile these recommendations? What kind of research went into it? And then we can dive into your findings and the recommendations that your team found. Sure. So I am a member and a board member of the New York Medical Directors Association. And you know, soon in March, soon after the uh, it was evident that the COVID was was traveling throughout the nursing homes and having a large impact. The organization organized a meeting for members, and it was very informative and interesting because it's membership from throughout the state. So there were people in, in Manhattan, people in Queens, people in Nassau, Suffolk, people in Rochester, people all over the state. And it was very informative because we're all kind of in different stages of the pandemic. And as we met, we learned from each other's experiences. And we each kind of had to make our own adjustments in the nursing home as, as more changes were evident. And at a certain point, I was talking with one of the co-authors and I said, you know, this is, you know, it's really honestly pretty traumatic <laughs> what we went through, but we, we learned a lot through it. And we really should try to help other facilities and areas who have not had this experience, you know, fortunately have not had this experience, learn from our experience so that they could be better prepared. And then we decided that we should we identified two of the people who were, you know, heavily involved and had a lot of input. And then the four of us, we had various meetings. We had a lot of sharing of documents where we, we edited. We had some phone calls and Zoom meetings. For the most part, it was it was all cordial. There were a few things that we had differences of opinion about. But for the most part, it was all cordial. And, and for the most part, we agreed on the recommendations. Yeah. So let's get into some of those recommendations, especially, you know, I think you make a good point by saying that, you know, New York obviously was the center of the pandemic, both in nursing homes and in the general population. As the nation is starting to open up, you know, I think nursing homes, I think a lot of people don't really realize this, is that there are still about three quarters of the nursing homes that didn't have any infections. Maybe they were in an area that didn't receive as much community spread. You know, maybe they're in a rural location, more isolated. But as the nation starts to open up, you know, this is still a concern for long-term care. So 
What do you think some of the top recommendations would be if you are running a nursing home right now that doesn't have any infections and, you know, as the community around you starts to open up and you don't really have that protective layer that you did during the peak of, you know, admission bans and just general stay-at-home orders? What are some of the top things that operators should focus on from that perspective? Sure. So I think probably number one would be, I guess number one would be to not not assume that you're in the clear and you're going to be in the clear forever. And I think that's where, you know, the, the, we were in the nursing home generally, everyone was so worried about keeping it out that we didn't realize it was already in. Um, so one is to, you know, to not rest on your laurels and think that you're magically somehow immune or better. You know, everyone is at risk and once it happens, it can spread quickly. Related to that, I would say if you, if you're not, you know, in the midst of, uh, you know, an outbreak, then I would say uh, work very hard on getting the sufficient and appropriate PPE. There's, you know, you need to, there's a lot of equipment, you know, the, the face shield, uh, the N95 or similar masks, uh, surgical masks, the gowns, and also to, to kind of strategize, okay, you know, do I have unit for people who, or a wing for people who test positive? Do I have the ability to test? You know, do I have the ability to do antibodies? Can my laboratory, you know, help that? And do we have enough, you know, swabs to do that testing? And I would also help. There's so many things to do. <laughs> um, and I would also um, work on um, infection control training. If you have the, you know, the hospitals don't often have, you know, TB patients, but everyone kind of knows there's a special isolation room and everyone wears a gallon and the N95. But they're aware of that. You know, the hospital, nursing homes are not used to that. They're not used to having to, you know, contact and droplet isolation. I think that it's a good time to make sure that you have enough hand sanitizer, that make sure you have enough, you know, training for staff on how to, you know, put on and take off the masks and the gowns and the gloves. So I want to focus in on those two areas that I think are, you know, emerging and have emerged both in New York and elsewhere as really important. And that's the idea of testing and infection control. And to start off with testing, I thought reading your conclusions, I thought it was interesting that you kind of had a nuanced view on testing staff, because as we move into the next phase of the pandemic in a lot of places, there's one prevailing opinion, and we've heard it even mentioned among CDC officials that says, you know, if you test all the residents in a nursing home and you find out, you know, who's positive and who's negative, that's great. But in a lot of situations where there already has been an outbreak, it doesn't really inform the way that you're going to actually, you know, handle the situation. If you've already had an outbreak, you've probably been doing all the things that testing would tell you to do. But as we move into this next phase, there's been a lot of focus on testing staff and trying to figure out what's the frequency, what's the strategy around that. So I wanted to you, to ask you just to describe a little bit of the conclusions that you found about uh, testing staff, because I think that's going to be really top of mind for a lot of providers moving forward as they continue to deal with this and realize that this could be part of their lives for a year or more. Yeah, that's a very good question. And unfortunately, I don't think we've lived enough of it yet to have an opinion. And maybe in six months, <laughs> we'll have another paper about our you know, recommendations about that. I think in principle, it does make sense to staff because they're not living in a bubble. They are not, you know, only going to the nursing home and not going anyplace else. They're living their lives and going to the supermarket or wherever else they need to go. And that's more true now as there are, you know, non 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 essential workers. I mean I guess non essential workers are now, you know, going out and about more as well. So you can't assume that your staff is fine. I think one of the issues is I do think that we were behind the April because we didn't realize that it was being spread. So we weren't using the PPE. And I think now now that we're aware they could spread asymptomatically and staff is wearing PPE, I think even if staff is sick, I think they are less likely to spread it, but you don't want to count just on that. So 
I would say that my personal feeling is I think testing staff in a, ideally testing for staff should be non-traumatic and with a rapid turnaround time. And so in New York State now staff, if they work uh, more than three days a week, have to get swabbed uh, for PCR twice a week. And if they work less than three days a week, they get swabbed once a week. Many facilities are using the nasal uh, test for that instead of the nasal pharyngeal swab. And I think that for prolonged repeated testing, I think the nasal swab is far less traumatic for staff. I think only time will tell us it is as effective in uh, diagnosis. But I think to subject, personally, my opinion, I think to subject staff to twice a week nasal pharyngeal swab has potential for, for injury and trauma. And then I think the other issue is that so the test can't be you know harmful to the staff and we also need a rapid turnaround time. So should when we have kind of more accurate point of care testing, I think nursing home staff should be prioritized for that because, you know, if you get tested on Monday and you don't get the results till Wednesday, you know, you could have been sick on Tuesday and working and not known it. Now again you're wearing the equipment, but you know you really want to do its maximal uh, effort to protect Locations and stuff. Yeah, and that's an interesting point too that you raised. And I feel like your paper that I read was one of the first ones that really actually talked about that trauma angle and that, you know, that difficulty angle with testing. You know, I think people are well meaning, and, you know, I agree too that I think that you should test as much as possible, whether it's staff or residents. But it was interesting to see you bring up the trauma aspect of it because it really is, it, it, I have not received a test myself, but it does not seem pleasant, the test based on the diagrams <laughs> that I've seen. And I feel like right. that has been missing from the conversation and especially also around the residents. You know, you're talking about people who are very frail. They may be confused. And, you know, I can only imagine how difficult it must be for a staff member to go in and realize, OK, I might have to perform this very uncomfortable procedure that I have had to go through also. And then on someone who is really also not in a great physical state, maybe not in a great mental state either. So I thought it was interesting that your research addressed that. And did you hear you know, directly from practitioners saying this was really uncomfortable or I'm having trouble doing it with residents. Uh, what was kind of the response from that? Yeah, I'm, I have a lot of physician friends who had the nasopharyngeal swab and they were very clear that it was, it was you know, beyond unpleasant. My friend had a <laughs> nosebleed for a while. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a benign test. And obviously when it needs to be done, it should be done. And if the data in the future shows that it is much more reliable than a nasal swab, you know, that needs to be reevaluated. If you maybe do one of each each week, I, I don't know. Ideally, it would be best if we could have, you know, a, a, either you know, finger stick or some other rapid response test. But, uh, you know, until we need to find that balance between keeping the staff and the patient safe and also not causing, you know, harm to them in the process. But, yeah, people who have had the test are very clear. I have not had the nasopharyngeal myself, but my colleagues have been very clear about it, the discomfort. And I can't, I can't imagine what it is like for a patient in the nursing home you know, with, with mild to moderate dementia who has, you know, been in their room for months, you know, now months, not had the usual, you know, programming that they're, that they're accustomed to, not seeing their family live, you know, staff coming in wearing, you know, a, a gown and a face shield and a mask. And, you know, maybe they have an ID now that shows like their picture and a big smile. And then this person is coming at you with a big, <laughs> a big tip up your nose. So, you know, I think there is, you know, unrecognized kind of psychological impact for lots of people with this, but certainly for patients with dementia who, you know, can't fully get it. 
Yeah, and I think I think that does play into kind of the evolving opinion on testing where we are seeing, I think it was a CDC official maybe last week or two weeks ago, said something along the lines of, and I alluded to this earlier, but you know, if you already had an outbreak in a facility and you already know that you have a, a bunch of positive cases based on people who have already shown symptoms, you know, if you do a baseline test of a whole nursing home, which you have to do under federal rules to reopen the visitors. But there's a sense that that's not really going to tell you anything you didn't already know. You know, you already know if you have a case or if you have a bunch of cases in the facility that you have to do all of these steps to prevent it. And then it's nice to know, and it's probably, it's not a bad thing, but it there it does raise the question of, okay, I've tested it and I've tested all my residents and now I'm just going to have to do the same thing I did beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on... I think that there is still value in knowing. I think that when we've tested people who were completely asymptomatic and then they were positive, it honestly it was like mind blowing because it, you know, as, as physicians, I think we're very we we have a strong belief in our clinical skills, and maybe maybe that's less so nowadays. Maybe you know people just are used to ordering CAT scans and X-rays and whatnot. But as a geriatrician, like I still count on my kind of my history and my physical exam and my clinical judgment. And COVID has basically wiped out any perception of my ability to have a clinical judgment on diagnosis of COVID. I've seen too many people who have absolutely no symptoms at all, you know, test positive. And so I think that, yes, um, depending on your prevalence, you probably, you know, you will need to be protective for everybody. But um, now we're reaching the point, at least in Nassau County, where we're kind of over that peak. And now we're like, you know, yes, fine, we've tested everybody. We know who's positive. We know when they get negative. We know that everyone else is negative. But, you know, then when we start letting visitors in, then when people start going out for tests again, then when, you know, if we start to have programs, you know, there could be false negatives. So I think there's still that risk of recurrence. And so I I think there is value in in having that testing, not on a daily basis, but I think at some some level, just to really know what you're dealing with. And and to kind of respect, kind of respect COVID, I guess. Yeah, that is something that the more I write about it and the more I hear from practitioners on the ground is that the disease just behaves oddly in a way that, you know, I'm not a doctor myself, but it sounds like based on what you're saying that you would agree with that, where it's, you know, I've talked to administrators of buildings who say it doesn't make any sense the way it's spreading or, you know, it doesn't look the way that I would expect something to look because suddenly, you know, the patient is fine and there's no symptoms and then suddenly two days later they're in a really serious condition so i think that's one thing that is getting lost in all this is that it is still a novel virus you know that it means that we don't really understand it as well as we do the flu or any other virus and that kind of leads me to my next question which is about infection control it's kind of a big topic now especially now that we have federal data about nursing home deaths and cases of COVID-19. The media and a lot of news organizations are rightfully pointing out that the industry had a lot of problems with infection control before. It's a very common citation. There's new fines for it. What do you think, based on your discussions and your research, what do you think needs to be done in terms of infection control to both beef it up right now to protect people during the pandemic and then improve it into the future to make sure that, you know, if we ever get struck by another virus like this, that we don't have the same results and we don't have the same really high case count that we're looking at right now? Sure. So a few things. One is I think that there should be consideration to having nursing staff and CNAs, you know, kind of direct patient care staff, um, fit tested in the nursing home world. I know many facilities have tried to get that done and you just can't get the equipment to do the fit testing. And the fit testing is basically where they 
put you in a helmet that looks like you're an astronaut and it's kind of airtight and uh, they put you wear the mask and then they spray aerosol that's a certain like micron size that wouldn't fit through the mask filter but can fit through like any sort of edges of the mask where it's not fitting and then with that they decide what what size mask you wear and i think that that's that's kind of standard when you join a hospital they make you get fit tested and you know for that one random to do test patient you have you know every five years but yeah. now i mean everyone's been fit tested because of covid so i think if i think that the government should help nursing homes procure the ability to do uh fit testing and i think the government should focus less on fines and punishment and more on helping and figuring out what the needs are and how to help those needs be met because you know this this hit everybody, hit everybody by surprise. And I think that, that there should be kind of support and guidance and assistance and that, as opposed to kind of criticism and blame and fines and citations. And I'm sure there will be places that, that do merit, you know, fines or citations, but that's the exception. And I think the goal should be for to help rectify and correct and prevent. I think that should be their focus. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point you bring up about, you know, these things that have been standard practice at hospitals for years really haven't trickled down to the nursing home setting. And that's also occurring. You know, we're seeing the acuity of the people who live in nursing homes has been steadily rising, but at the same time, you know, over the course of decades, but at the same time, you haven't seen that kind of medical focus and medical support. You know, even something as simple as a fit test for a mask, you're correct. No one would think about this in a nursing home setting until right now. And I'm sure there's countless other things, especially around infection control that nursing home operators and staff really haven't thought about or really haven't thought, okay, we might need this if it's at one day necessary, you know, the one time in five years or the hundred year storm. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, you know, the regulations and the support for that evolve alongside what we're learning right now about COVID and, you know, just infection control in nursing homes more generally. Right. Yeah. So my last question, and I think this is a timely one as well, because, you know, states and cities are opening up. Did you, I'm not sure if it was a particular focus of this study, but in your discussions and your conversations with leaders from all around the state, what's the sense on reopening nursing homes safely? Are we at a point yet where that's even something that should be considered? Some states, you know, like Massachusetts and I believe Indiana have started to allow outdoor visits with tons of restrictions and, you know, very short duration. But I know that this is, and you've mentioned earlier in our discussion, it's a really big issue because these people who live in nursing homes have not seen their families in months and months. They may be really confused. Families are really scared and terrified and they want to get those visits. And, you know, I speak to operators all the time. They want to facilitate it. They're not trying to hide their residents from the world, but it's just a safety measure that unfortunately people have had to take. What are some of the top considerations that operators, you know, in New York that you've seen and elsewhere should really consider before opening their doors or before, you know, trying to come up with a firm plan for reopening to visitations and other kind of non-emergency visits to the nursing home? Right. So that's a very good question. And I'm slightly embarrassed. I'm actually very embarrassed to say that I had a dream last night <laughs> about the nursing homes reopening. <laughs> and in my dream, the nursing home became like like bombarded with family members and like people weren't wearing their masks and they were just walking around all over the place. And it was like chaos. And I, I, I think it's kind of probably sad that this is what I'm dreaming about. <laughs> um, but it does show that it's in my subconscious and something I'm worried about. Uh, but it's something that's important. I mean, I cannot express probably fully or without kind of trying how hard it was for families. And so it is, you know, their, their loved ones are in their facilities. 
you know, dying from an acute new, you know, respiratory infection and, and they couldn't visit. And when they were allowed to visit because it was end of life, they were afraid to visit. And, you know, so we were kind of like their, their lifeline and their connection. Um, but, you know, it was emotionally very difficult for the families to not be there when this is the time, you know, when in our society we are most want to be there. So, so the desire for families to visit um, is very, very strong. And the desire for, you know, the residents and patients to see their families is also strong. And the video visits are nice, but it's not the same. So, you know, contrary to my dream, I think that, I think the idea of outdoor visits makes sense. I think you need a schedule. I think you need, you know, the patient and the staff need to wear the, uh, you know, masks, appropriate masks. They should still social distance on the visit. I do think outdoor visit is better. Hopefully, you know, we, we do have nicer weather now. And that will last. Whether or not family members should get tested before they come, probably a good idea. It, I, I don't know that that's kind of feasible to do on a long-standing basis. I don't know, you know, in terms of insurance coverage and, you know, you can, again, you can get tested one day and then the next day, you know, be exposed. So I think that the operator should work on it. I think that you do need, you know, kind of government support for it to happen. But I think, I think that people can be creative and kind of careful in doing that. I have one family member who, who literally looks into renting, I think it's called like a cherry picker from Home Depot so that she could drive up and, you know, bring herself up to the third floor and, you know, see her mom. And while there are several problems with that idea, it does, it does, it does reflect, reflect that, that need, that deep-seated need to see your loved one and to be with them and, and how desperate people are for that connection. So I think that we should be working on, you know, once, once we have, you know, a, a sense of what the prevalence is kind of in the community and in the facility, you know, to really try to make that effort in a controlled, organized, you know, smart way. Not like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I certainly hope that it will be a good dream and not a nightmare once things start to uh, reopen. Uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. This is a uh, really important research, and we're really just trying our best to highlight some of the early research and get as much good information out there as possible. And uh, this conversation today went a long way toward doing that. So thank you so much, and take care. Okay, thanks. I appreciate your efforts, and I'm glad that people are concerned and worried about this vulnerable but really vital population. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for all the work you've done. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.